As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 9. As you're turning to Acts, we're going to pick up, I'm going to read for us verses 32 through 43. We are tracking through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves coming to the end of Acts, chapter 9, in a fascinating period in the book of Acts. We're about to transition from the ministry of Peter into the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And this is an important transition in the book of Acts because it's an important transition in the redemptive plan of God to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Acts chapter 9, we've had the opportunity to spend some time thinking about this man Saul who would be changed and transformed into the apostle Paul. And there's a sense in which Peter has been almost left to the side. We've almost forgotten about him. And Luke right now is bringing our focus back to the life and ministry of the great apostle Peter, the leader amongst the leaders of the 12 apostles. And here's how we're reintroduced to Peter. Follow along beginning in verse 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who is paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You ever bump into somebody maybe you knew in a previous life? Maybe somebody you went to high school with or somebody you went to college with and it's been a substantial amount of time since you've seen them and you run into them. Maybe it's even been decades and you're looking at them and and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I remember when this person was like this. I remember maybe it was the crazy lifestyle they were living or the things that they were pursuing or you know, the way they dressed and the way they lived, and now you're looking at them and you, it appears that you're looking at somebody entirely different, somebody who's been completely changed. Or maybe you've had the experience like I have where you've run into somebody expecting that they're going to be different when really they're exactly the same. They haven't grown up at all. We notice this with our own kids. Maybe you do too. As, as parents with young children, we see our kids growing up sometimes before our very eyes. We'll often look at pictures of our kids when they're little, when they're really little, and we'll, we'll sit and look at these pictures, and then we'll look across the table, and we'll look, and we'll like sadness in our hearts. What happened? They're growing up so quickly. 
We see this not only in the physical characteristics and physical growth that they are exhibiting in their lives. We see this too in their maturity, the way they think, the way they speak. You ever had that experience, parents, where all of a sudden your kid says something and you're like, where in the world? Like, how did you just turn from 2 to 12 overnight? We were sitting around our table at dinner just the other night this past week. And, and we're eating. my wife makes a lot of great things. One of the things she makes that we love as a family is her coleslaw. I know, it's weird. We love it. It's, a, it's amazing. And my kids devour it. I mean, we, just, we can't put enough on their plate. They just inhale it. It's unbelievable. And I'm sitting there, and I'm loving it, and I'm looking at my kids. My kids, doesn't mom make the best coleslaw? And they're like, mm, you know, mouth's full. Mm, yes, yes, she makes the best coleslaw. And my son Josh, who's almost six, looks at me and goes, well, not better than God. <laughs> And I'm like, oh boy. I'm like, well, I have to deal with this little Sunday school answer, you know, so I ate all pastoral. Well, son, you know, I don't think that God is really making a whole lot of coleslaw. And he looks at me, and without skipping a beat, he goes, well, he is preparing a banquet for us, Dad. (laughs) And I conceded. You know, I, I said, well, son, maybe God is making the best coleslaw we'll ever taste right now. And uh, maybe, maybe you're right. And I just sat there and I thought, man, it's unbelievable to see my kids growing up physically, mentally, the maturing that takes place. And it strikes me because that's the way it should be in the Christian life. God intends every Christian to be experiencing ongoing growth. God saves us, and when we're saved, we begin in the stage of infancy, and in God's grace, he wants to grow us and transform us and change us. He wants to mature us and strengthen us so that we're stable and healthy Christians, no longer like little children. He wants us to grow up into adult Christians in the spiritual sense. Peter as I've mentioned, has kind of been shelved for a little bit as Luke talks about the conversion of Saul. And we've spent a little bit of time looking at the ministry of Stephen and the ministry of Philip. And there's a sense in which we've kind of almost forgotten about Peter in this portion of the book of Acts. But all of a sudden, our attention and focus is brought right back to Peter. And Luke, who's writing the book of Acts through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sees fit to draw our attention to two really unique miracles. And as I read this, maybe you are too, you're starting to think like, why why would these be inserted here and now? What's the purpose of reminding us of Peter and putting these specific miracles right here? Well, it is intentional. God doesn't make mistakes. And there is a plan unfolding here that is going to become clear as we study through this text. You see, God has been working on Peter And he is preparing Peter, and we're getting a glimpse of the ministry of Peter so we can see how God has grown him and shaped him because there's going to be a greater ministry necessary for Peter to take on. It's been about six years, some estimates say even close to 10 years, since Peter preached his thundering sermon on Pentecost. All of this time has passed, and if you know anything about the life of Peter, you understand that Peter is a man who we get a great glimpse of throughout Scripture, and he is a man who is beginning to change before our eyes. 
I love that about Peter. You know, Peter, when he writes, he doesn't give us a whole lot of doctrinal instruction, not like Paul. Paul is this theologian. He is this former rabbi, and the instruction exhorts us with such clear theology and doctrine, and Peter has some of that, but what Peter does is so precious and so unique. See, Peter models for us what it means to be changed by the grace of God. We have such a powerful picture of who he was and who he's becoming and who he will be. You know, God cares very intimately about our growth in him. He's concerned about his children growing up spiritually and developing maturity in Christ. And Peter teaches us by way of his own example. And I want to look at four ways in which Peter teaches us what it means to grow and ways in which we can grow in the Christian life. The first is this, a growing commitment to the mission. We've said it often around here, but God saves us and then he sends us. He embraces us and then he commissions us with a message and a mission. And one thing we notice is that all through chapters 9 and chapters 10, God has been calling and changing people. We saw Paul, the man who was previously Saul, he's being changed into this apostle. He's been given this commission to go to the Gentiles. Right now, the gospel has predominantly been going to the Jewish people, but God has planned that the gospel will go forth to the Gentile world. And in chapter 10, God also calls Peter to this very same ministry. Paul will, in the second half of the book of Acts, take the message to the Gentile world. He will become the focus of Luke's attention. But before we get to Paul, here is Peter, and God is going to show that Peter actually has to be the one who flings the door open to the Gentile world that Paul rushes through. And that is incredibly strategic in the mind of God. You see, Peter is... Peter is the supreme apostle in one sense. He's the leader amongst the leaders. He holds a great deal of authority, and people pay attention to what he does and what he says. Chapters 9 and 10 provide us with parallel accounts of two great breakthroughs that launch the next great step in the church's worldwide expansion. The church had expanded from Jerusalem into the neighboring areas of Judea and Samaria, but now it's about to expand to the Gentile world. And you have to understand this, that in the mind of a Gentile, this was a massive obstacle. The Jews looked at the Gentiles and they thought there's no hope for them. They're about as valuable as dogs, which in that culture and society was worth nothing. They're scavengers. They're not worthy of God's grace. And they looked at the Gentiles and there was this great block because of this cultural distinction and they thought there's no way that God will save them and yet the plan of God was always to save the Gentile world. Hallelujah. The church we see here is growing up in its understanding of God's plan of redemption. Now think, think of this, okay? Between six and 10 years, the whole church at this point is predominantly Jewish. Six and ten years. It's taking some time to grow up. It's taking some time to mature. And God is going to use Peter here, and he's going to grow Peter in such a way that he can lead the church through this period of transition and growth in a way that is healthy and vibrant. We see Peter's growing commitment to the mission in two uh, prominent ways. First is his commitment to the church, and the second is his commitment to the world. I want you to look at verse 32. Look at the commitment to the church. See, what was Peter doing? What's he been doing in all of this time, this six years? Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda, and there he found a man named Aeneas. 
You have this picture of Peter who isn't lazing about in his life. He's a man who is deeply committed to the church. In fact, we see that he's moving around from church to church. Peter had preached this amazing sermon. Thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe there's this tendency in the, the heart and mind of Peter to say, you know, I've really made it in this spiritual life. You know, I've kind of made something of myself and maybe I can just kick my feet up and relax. And maybe I can leave some of the more personal ministry to the hands of, you know, people below me in the Lord. And yet that's not what we see in Peter at all. Peter is a man who can preach powerful sermons, but he's a man who intimately cares about the church. And when I say he cares about the church, I don't mean the church in the universal sense, that all the believers who make up the church, that's true, but he cares deeply about the local church, the local gatherings of Christians who are meeting to be strengthened and encouraged. And here, his goal is to go from church to church, and he wants to pour himself into them. He wants to build them up. He wants to edify them. He wants to teach and instruct them. He, in many ways, I believe, is actively living out before our very eyes what Paul says is the very purpose of the church and particularly the leaders in the church. He says in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body is joined together, held by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Peter models for us a deep commitment to the church. As we grow, we need to see an increasing love for and a commitment to the local church. It's incompatible to say you're a follower of Jesus Christ and not love his bride, the church. Do you see that? It's, it's not healthy, it's not helpful to say, wow, I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm not gonna be committed to the very thing he's committed himself to, the church. In fact, if I could maybe paint a picture for you, I would say this, that as we consider how our love for and commitment to the church is to increase, let me draw a parallel to, to marriage. You see, in marriage, as, as you start living life together, the objective as you walk in this life together is to grow in your love for one another. And we would say that where there is a couple in a marriage who are kind of working through the, the issues of life and they're going about the daily business of life, who are growing apart, we would look at that and say, you know, that's a very unhealthy relationship. I mean, it's, it's not the picture of what marriage is supposed to be. There is to be, as you live with your spouse, and maybe I can speak to you men for a minute, your wives, you can thank me later. Men, you are, as you live with your wife, supposed to be growing in your love for your wife, in your commitment to your wife, in your investment in your wife. She is the greatest priority, earthly speaking, that God has given you. And when you take that investment and you cultivate that relationship and you care about her deeply, listen, over time, your love and appreciation will only deepen. And if you neglect that duty and responsibility, what happens is this, your love for her, your commitment to her, the beauty that you once saw will begin to fade. And how many marriages are there where each individual has paid attention to their own interests and their own pursuits and their own priorities and they've neglected the one thing that God has called them to pay special attention to. And by the time the kids move out of the house, the husband and wife look at each other and they don't even know who each other are and why they're still together. It's a sad reality in many relationships, but I would submit to you that it's a sad reality for many when it comes to the church. They treat the church as something trivial, as something maybe to 
you know, kind of get involved in every once in a while. And then they wonder why over time their love for the church, the bride of Christ, isn't deepening, it's fading and waning. Because over time they have distanced themselves from the very thing that God has called them to prioritize in their lives. And as Christians we need to see that the church is the institution that God is using in the world. And we need to be committed to it. And that's why Peter here is so invested in the church, why he cares so deeply, because he understands secondly, uh, what he models for us is this commitment to the world. He knows the church, when it's healthy, has the potential to make an impact on the world. And so he focuses first there, but he never loses sight of that overarching mission that the church exists to be a light unto the world. The church is like a lighthouse that is flashing around in the darkness and trying to draw people to the truth of who God is and what he has done. That's why the church exists here and now. Peter travels to two different places, notice the names there, Lydda and then to Joppa. And geographically, this is important because he's moving further and further away from Jerusalem and he's actually moved himself into Gentile territory. You see, God is setting it up for the next phase of his plan of redemption. And I would just say as we look at this that Peter was doing exactly what he should have been doing. Remember Jesus said in Acts 1.8 that you're supposed to go from, Judea, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. He's doing exactly what Jesus has actually commissioned them to do. Now many, and perhaps even most of the apostles at this time had remained in Jerusalem. And, and if they did that, I would suggest that they did so wrongly, that that was not the objective that God had for them. Jesus had sent them into all the world with the gospel, but perhaps many of them at this point have gotten entrenched in Jerusalem. According to the last section we looked at in Acts chapter nine, there was a bit of peacetime forming. The persecution has slowed down against the church, and so maybe, maybe some of the apostles were looking at this as a time to maybe rest. Maybe they were you know, kicking their shoes off, and they're, you know what, let's just stay in Jerusalem where we're comfortable. We don't have to go outside of our, our comfort zone right now. We can kind of just relax a little bit and maybe you know, get a breath. And then we look at Peter and we say, wow, that's a whole different ballgame. Not Peter. Peter is not entrenched in Jerusalem. He cares nothing about his own comforts. He's not pursuing his own passions. Peter is pursuing the heart of God for the world. And he understands that this is his purpose because it is the purpose of the church. I wonder as we maybe just consider that picture for a moment, how often we are inclined to get entrenched in our own lives. How often our focus becomes so selfish You know, we are just focusing on the here and the now and we get entrenched in our own lives and we forget that God has actually called us to look beyond ourselves into the world because they need Jesus Christ. So many ways in which we can become complacent and apathetic to the calling that God has placed on our lives to go to the world. And what we see in Peter, I believe, is there is an increasing, and I, I love this, look, as he matures in the Lord, Think about this. As he grows in Christ's likeness, there's not a decreasing sense of urgency in his heart to reach the lost. There's an increasing sense of urgency. He's looking at his life winding down. You have to believe this. And those of you who are a little bit older, I've talked to people who tell me this all the time. The older I get, the more I'm seeing. My time is limited and I need to make the most of it and I need to get after what God has called me to do. And young people, we would do well to heed the wisdom of those who've walked the path before us. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your time. 
It is too precious what we have to not share it with the world. Here is Peter, and he is going, and he is going to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a growing commitment to the mission. I hope that's true in your heart this morning as you grow in Christ. Secondly, notice this, there's a growing compassion for the hurting. Peter is all about the truth, but he preaches truth and he exhibits such grace and such compassion towards those who are needy. And there are two miracles that are highlighted here. And both of them are fairly self-explanatory. Let's just look at them quickly and dissect them a little bit. As he goes to Lydda, notice that there he found a man named Aeneas. We don't know if Aeneas is a follower of Christ or if he's an unbeliever, But here's what we do know about him. The man is bedridden, and he's been so for eight years. He's been paralyzed. He lives the last eight years of his life on a mat or a bed, so to speak, that would be rolled up, and he would sit on it. It would, at this point, probably be filthy. It would be dirty. It would be smelly. I mean, he spent his paralyzed life living on this mat over the last eight years. In this culture, that would mean that he has very little hope. He can't earn an income. He's dependent upon the gifts of others. He's dependent upon the care of others. Many people in the Jewish culture would look upon him and believe he's despised, believing that this, whatever this was, however it happened, maybe it was an accident, maybe he contracted some kind of illness that destroyed his, his body in this way. How, whatever it was, many were inclined to look at him and say, this is his fault. He is this way because of his own sin. God is con- cursing him. God is punishing him. It's a very disheartening and despairing condition for this man. Whatever the condition, you'll notice that a miracle is performed right here for this man. And this is a real miracle. Here is Peter in verse 34. He says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately, I love that about the miracles of Jesus. They have immediate effect and power. And immediately this man rises to his feet. There have been some who say that this is perhaps one of the greatest miracles in all of Scripture. You know, how many parents of teenagers have said, arise and make your bed with no results? <laughs> all right, all right. We know he's not talking about making his bed and making his room look tidy. But if you can appreciate what's going on here, it might help just drive home the point. You see, this man had been so radically healed that he looks at this place where he lived. You know, this was his existence. This was his identity. And what you have to see here is that what Peter is, or, yeah, Peter, excuse me, is offering him is a fundamental change in his identity, in his existence. His life will forever be changed. And there's a similar reality taking place with this woman named Tabitha. Her name is Tabitha, verse 36 tells us. It can be translated as Dorcas. If you're going to choose between the two names for your daughter, I would suggest Tabitha. And there is a lot that's said about her, and we're going to get there in a minute. And I think there's some precious things that we need to see. But for now, let's just look at the miracle itself. Here is this woman. She's been dead for some time, maybe a day or so. Her body has been washed, and she's been placed in an upper room. This is traditional burial practice outside of Jerusalem. 
There's some disciples who hear that Peter is close by, so they send urgently for him, and Peter answers, and he comes without delay, and Peter walks in and sees this woman lying dead, and he sees the chaos in the room. There's widows who are standing beside him and right by the body, and they're all weeping, and there's so much mess and so much chaos. And then it says, Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then he called all the saints and widows in and he presented her to them alive. You have to see There's a reason these miracles are here, and they're setting the stage for what's coming in chapter 10, but God is also, listen, reinforcing the realities of salvation. You see, every time we see physical miracles in the Bible that are real and genuine, they're intended to be signs of the salvation that only Jesus provides. In other words, the physical miracle depicts for us a spiritual reality in salvation, And this is so important to see because what we have here is a picture of a man who is lame and hopeless. He's diseased and he's cast off. And right there we have a spiritual picture of every human being who is cursed by sin. Every human being has fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We've missed the mark. We, We have failed to obey God. We've rebelled against him in so many different ways. And the reason we've done that is because we are sinners. We're sinners by nature. Our sin by both nature and practice means that we are marred. We have a disease, a terminal disease that is leading towards our death. Our sin, the Bible says, deserves to be punished because of the one we have sinned against. Every one of us in our sin is like this lame man, spiritually speaking. We are hopeless. We are dependent upon the grace and kindness of another. We are dependent upon the power of Jesus Christ to take us from our condition of brokenness and to utterly heal and transform us. And Tabitha presents to us the same picture, but take that picture of sickness, which is true of all humanity, and now import this idea that all of humanity is dead because of their trespasses and sin. That's what Paul says. We are not just spiritually floating by and trying to figure it out as those apart from Christ who are spiritually dead. We have no hope. We will be punished. The wrath of God is being stored up against us unless God divinely intervenes. Unless God reaches down and he calls us by name, I love this, and he says, arise, and he breathes the power of new life into us, and he takes us by the hand and he pulls us up You see, this is a picture of the spiritual life we have in Jesus Christ. The hope that's there for every sinner. You say, how is this hope even possible? It's because of one man who did one thing. God in the flesh came to this earth. He lived a sinless, perfect, spotless life. Like we've sung, he became the Lamb of God. He died in our place on a cross of wood. He paid the penalty for our sin, everything that we deserve to be punished for. He said, let me take it upon my back. I'll face God's wrath and anger that is justly towards you. I'll pay for it all. Every last drop I will suffer for you. 
I will cancel out the record of death that stands against you. And Jesus Christ, we sung about it today, look, he died, he was buried, and three days later, as he promised, he rose from the grave victorious. You see, he is the one who can suffer in our place and grant us life because he alone conquered the grave. That is the hope for every sinner, that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we look to him for our salvation, God graciously, he graciously takes our sin He forgives it all because it's paid in full and then he imparts to us the new life of Jesus Christ, that perfect spotless life and he warmly embraces us and welcomes us into his family and into this new existence where everything changes. And even though, listen, when we look at this ministry of Peter and it is supernatural, it is divine that he here is healing people and and we understand according to the scripture that he did this because he had the signs of an apostle. He could do these miracles and it evidenced the fact that he was a spokesperson for God. We don't have that same ability. We don't do miracles like this. But I tell you what we can do in our life and our ministries, we can have the same heart for the hurting that Peter did. And Peter was really following the example of Jesus Christ. The life and ministry of Jesus was marked by a deep sympathy and compassion for the hurting. We look at the ministry of Jesus and all we see is this. He cared so deeply. He looked upon Israel and he had compassion on them because the word of God says they were like sheep without a shepherd. He walked into village after village and the sick and the needy, the outcast, the downtrodden were brought to him. I mean, people flocked from everywhere to to bring the sick, to bring those who needed healing, the demon possessed. And here Jesus from morning to night, he met with them, he cared for them, he had compassion on them. You know, it's really sad when those who call themselves Christians have a hardened heart towards the hurting, isn't it? It's incompatible with our position before God when we understand what he's done for us, that we were once the lame, that we were once the dead, that we were once the outcast and the needy, and then God, in his mercy and grace, stepped down and he grabbed a hold of us, and he compassionately cared for us and he healed us and he breathed life into us and then to go out into this world and to look at the hurt and the lost and the needy and the broken and say, man, that's somebody else's problem. You know what? That's too much of an imposition on my life. To look at others in in that kind of condition and, and think that they're simply some kind of an infringement upon our time and they're not worth our efforts, they're not worth the trouble, they're somebody else's problem, they can deal with it, that is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God calls us to be a people who care for the least of these. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, at the end time, in the final judgment, one of the greatest markers of those who are genuinely saved will be that they cared for the least of these. And in doing so, they cared and they they showed their love for Jesus Christ. Those who were without clothes, those who were thirsty, those who were hungry, and those who were in prison, right? Here, Jesus says, if, if you do, if you go help any of those in my name for me, you've done so to me. In the final days, our, our faith will be tested and exposed. The reality of our faith will be exposed by the lives we lived. Do they prove that our faith was real, that there was a genuine change in our hearts? And this is a, a very 
important and weighty thing. And I can just say to you, maybe just personally and pastorally, look, I am so greatly encouraged and blessed and proud of the way I see the body of Christ caring for one another in this place. I am so overwhelmed. I am sometimes rebuked in my own heart as I see just how much you are pouring yourselves out for one another. And I just want to encourage you, keep on serving the Lord in this way. Keep praying that God would grant you this heart of compassion like him and like Peter. Peter, like Jesus, hears the hearts of the hurting and the needy. He found Aeneas in this painful, humiliating, a paralyzed condition, and he calls him to rise from his bed. Disciples run and call Peter to come to Joppa, and he goes without delay. It's no imposition. He's available for them. And, and I love the parallels here. You know, like Jesus, you remember the story in, in John 11 with Jesus, with Mary and Martha, and they're weeping, and their tears are just flowing as their brother Lazarus has died, and the word of God says that Jesus wept with them. I mean, the compassion in his heart for those who are hurting is just astounding. Here, Peter, he looks at Tabitha, but more than that, he looks at this woman's life and, and the, the worth and the value and, and the significant impact that she has had. And I love this. Maybe just as a, a footnote, we can look real quickly at this woman, Tabitha, because Luke sees fit to tell us so much about her and her character and the way she lived. Did you notice in verse 36 that it says that she was full of good works and acts of charity? How would you like that to be the epitaph of your life? I mean, she's so filled with charity and good works. In other words, they dominated her thinking and her heart. She simply wanted to serve others and showed compassion towards those in need. Notice the ones whom are weeping around her. It is the widows. Did you see that in verse 39? All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made for them while she was with them. In other words, this woman has such compassion on the the needy and the broken, the widows who are not cared for in this culture, the widows who are without a provider in this culture, this woman, maybe of means, uh, comes alongside these hurting women and she cares for them in such practical ways. She blesses them with robes and garments. I mean, they're holding them up to Peter like, look, look at this woman. She's utterly amazing. She has blessed us beyond measure. Her life is a testimony of what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You see, it's interesting when you think about him raising this woman from the dead and why he did it. You see, he didn't do this for Tabitha's benefit. Think about that for a minute. He's not doing this for her benefit. She's dead. Now, maybe you need to ask a question, where is she now, right? She's dead. Where did she go? Well, there's a lot of dispute about that, but I think, like Lazarus, she likely went into the presence of Jesus Christ. And can you just imagine, this isn't done for the benefit of her. Can you imagine what the scene in heaven must be like? Hey, Tabitha, I know you've only been here a couple hours, but you're gonna have to get back down there. She's like, oh, Jesus, really? I mean, those, those women, they, they know how to sew. They, they don't, I don't need to make any more garments, Lord. They're fine, they'll figure it out. She's like, I just wanna stay here. I gotta tell you, I gotta, I gotta believe that was quite a sacrifice for her to make to come back down after being in the presence of her Savior. At any rate, 
It leaves us asking, well, then what, what benefit is there? Whose benefit is it for? And the simple answer is this, at least this, it is for the benefit of those who are hurting and needy. Those women are weeping because of this impact that this woman has had on their lives. And as I thought a little bit more about this, I, I began to think, and God really convicted me about this, what will people say when I'm gone? What will people say about your life and your ministry when you leave this earth? I mean, will people weep over you? Granted, everybody in here will likely have somebody who weeps and cries for us, but will they weep over us because of the impact that we have had on their lives, you know, that we were willing to spend ourselves, to be spent for others for the cause of Jesus Christ? Will people look at us being gone and think, man, they served me so much. They gave everything for me. They showed me what it means to be a follower of Christ. They showed me Jesus himself. I don't know what they'll say about you if you were to die right now, but I know what I want people to say about me when I leave. I think there's so much here to look at, but I would just suggest to you there's some ways in which we can grow in our compassion for the hurting. The first way is this, look for opportunities to alleviate suffering. And so many of us are so blind to the, the needs of others because we're so focused on ourselves. We're so consumed with our lives, with our wants, with our needs, we miss the reality that there are so many hurting and broken people around you. And if I could just say to you for a minute, if you were to look around right now in this room, I can guarantee you, you are surrounded by many who are hurting and needy and broken. We walk out into a world that is filled with sin and darkness and people who are hurting and needy and broken and God has called us to pay attention to this world, to look for opportunities to alleviate suffering. I love what John Piper says. He says, we live to alleviate all suffering for humanity, especially eternal suffering. So look for opportunities. Peter exemplifies that. The opportunities came his way and he was ready Second, do this, love people like Jesus loves them. And this, we so often need a change in our perspective in terms of the way we see people. We see people as objects to be used. We see people as stepping stones to get ahead. We see people as projects to fix. We need to see them as people to be loved. And lastly, live to serve. Live to serve. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to hear this. It is incompatible to say that you are a follower of Christ and not serve others. In fact, think about the great commandment for a minute. Remember the great commandment? Jesus said, uh, the greatest commandment of all is love who first? Come on, uh, two people know this? Love who first? God. And love who second? Your neighbor as yourself. You see, the two are so intimately intertwined, it is impossible to say you love God and not love your neighbor. And by the way, 1 John tells us this, if you don't love your neighbor, who don't you also love? God. And that's a great challenge for all of us. The degree to which you're loving others in the body of Christ and those even outside the body of Christ is in one sense an indicator of the degree to which you love God. So it's helpful for us to think in this kind of framework we need to live to serve. Third, Peter tells us that we need to be growing, have a growing, excuse me, impact for the kingdom. There is a greater purpose in these miracles that 
Luke draws out for us. Yes, they were to have compassion on the hurting and needy that were present in that moment. Yes, for Aeneas himself who needed desperately to experience this healing power of God. But broader than that, I want you to notice the purpose of these miracles. In both of these places, something significant happened. Look at verse 35. It says, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. And then look down at verse 42. In Joppa, it says, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. You see, the purpose of miracles is always this. They are signs to prove to the world that the gospel is true. There is a God who is powerful enough to save. There's a God who's powerful enough to forgive you from all of your sins. There's a God who's powerful enough to take your brokenness and to build something beautiful with your life. And here we see that many people embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. They're so in awe of this life-giving power that they have seen physically, that they long for spiritually. And God says, I will meet you and I will give to you what your heart so longs for. Two different places, two different miracles, and two different revivals break out. This is a powerful, fruitful ministry of Peter. You know, God intends that all believers bear fruit. In fact, in John 15, he tells his disciples that we're not just to bear fruit, we're to bear more fruit. And then he eventually says we're to bear much fruit. And as we abide in him, he will bring forth that fruit. Uh, the fruit that we bear in our lives is both internal and external. It begins internally, the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5 says the fruits of the Spirit, what, what God produces in a changed heart that is submitted and surrendering to Him on a daily basis is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You see, all those things that are opposite to the way we typically operate in our flesh. As we surrender and submit to God, he changes us. He bears fruit in our lives internally. And that will eventually manifest itself in external ways. It manifests itself, the scriptures tell us, with the fruit of praise from our lips. The book of Hebrews says that. Uh, holy lives, Colossians 1.10, is the, the fruit of a holy life. But one of the primary ways that fruit is evidenced in our life and through our ministry is this. Listen, Christians, listen. Through the salvation of souls. And we need not neglect this. We must not neglect this. Every Christian is intended by God to bear both internal and external fruit. We should long to see people saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should strive to, with the power of God to see people saved. And I'm very aware of this. Listen, it is not about any power that is inherent in us. Some plant, some water, but who gives the growth? God. But don't miss there, everybody's got a ministry to play, and that ministry is multiplied and bears fruit in the saving of souls. You say, well, I've not seen uh, a lot of people saved under my ministry. Maybe you're looking at your life as a Christian, you're saying, I've never seen anybody saved, and maybe you've never seen multitudes saved, and by the way, you may never actually see the fruit of souls in your own lifetime. I think of Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to India, a man who labored for decade after decade to translate the Bible into the common language so that people could know the truth of the gospel. In all his laborings, he never saw one convert. Not one person came to Jesus Christ. But listen, you want to know the fruit of his ministry? 
hundred years after that, every person who's come to faith in Jesus Christ has done so through the ministry of his. He is bearing fruit even in his death to this day. God is multiplying his labors and efforts in the ministry of the gospel. And now people have been redeemed because of all that he invested in his ministry. God may do that in your life too. You may be privileged to see somebody surrender their life to Jesus Christ. You may be privileged to be able to lead somebody to give their life to follow Jesus Christ. Or God may call you to significant ministries where you plead with people but never see the fruit in this life, but you work and labor faithfully unto the Lord. And long after you're gone, and God will reveal this, I believe, one day, you will see the fruit of your labor. Somewhere down the line, somebody is being impacted who may go out then and have an impact on somebody else to see somebody else saved with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you do in your life and ministry will multiply indirectly oftentimes to the salvation of souls. That's not an excuse, by the way, for not witnessing. And we've been pounding that drum, you know, we've been pounding that nail and beating that drum all year long. We are called to go. We have been sent with the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? Well, let's take a couple notes from Peter here. I think just a few things. I'll just give you this very simple pattern for a successful ministry. Be faithful, be available, and be humble. Be faithful. Strive to know him, to love him, and to live for him. Be faithful to walk daily with him through your spiritual disciplines, through the reading of his word, through prayer, through cultivating Christian fellowship and community, through worship of God. Be available. If God is your priority, I believe this with all my heart, he will use you. But if God is nowhere on your priority list, listen, God's not going to use you. God uses those who place him above all else. He uses those most, I should say, who place him above all else. And be humble. You know, this wasn't the first time that Peter had done miracles. But I love this. Peter knows exactly where the power comes from. He looks at Aeneas and he says, Jesus Christ heals you. He is not in this for self-exaltation or for self-glory. He is in this for one reason, to glorify and honor Jesus Christ. He knows who he is. He knows his own weakness and frailty. And he knows that it is only by the power of Jesus Christ that anybody is ever saved. We see this exemplified in verse 40 as he puts all of these loud, weeping women outside of the room. You can't fault him for that, right? Did you notice what he does? He puts them all out of the room and then he knelt down. He knelt down by the body. A position of humility and dependence, and weakness, and he prayed to God because he knew that that is where the power was. The power was not in him. It wasn't about him. It was all about the power of God. Prayerful Christians are powerful Christians. And all of this made him more fruitful. God desires that for you and he desires that for me. Be faithful, be available, be humble, and then trust that God will make your efforts fruitful and then turn the praise back to him and glory in his goodness and grace in using you. Lastly, notice this. Peter models for us growing, a growing likeness to the Savior. 
Some of you may have picked up on this already, and this is more in one sense by way of summary, but it's interesting. These miracles were essentially duplicates of miracles that Jesus had performed. The healing of Aeneas was similar to that of the paralytic at Bethsaida in John chapter 5, verse 8, where Jesus said to the man at the pool of Bethsaida, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. You remember that? The healing of Tabitha parallels the same kind of miracle when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Mark chapter 5 gives us that account, where, by the way, the exact same kind of scenario People were making commotion in this room where Jairus' daughter had died and Jesus put them out of the room. So too Peter puts out the, those who are making commotion out of the room. And Jesus interestingly said these words to this little girl, Tabitha Kumi, Tabitha, excuse me, Peter said that, get up, which by the way, you change one letter of Christ's words when he said this, Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. And I just want to let you know that this is no accident. This is incredibly intentional on the part of God. God is creating a parallel between the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Jesus. And by the way, there are parallels with the ministry of Elijah and Elisha who came before. And what he's doing is he's reminding people, listen, that just as Jesus and just as the former apostles came with my authority and they spoke on my behalf and they were my servants, so too Peter. Peter stands and will speak before me. And what he's about to do, you will listen and you will follow. And it will be hard, but listen, he stands as my representative. As he opens the door to the Gentile world, God is setting the scene to make it clear to the, Jew, the Jewish population in the church that this is God's plan. And I just want to highlight one principle for us as we wrap this up this morning. I think that this highlights for us something very important, that those who speak for Christ must also look like Christ. You can tell that Jesus has shaped this man's ministry. And I think in, in many ways, it's probably not a conscious attempt on the part of Peter to resemble Jesus, but something that was more instinctive. You know, something that had just kind of happened over time. As he spent time with Jesus, he became like Jesus. And I think that, that we understand that principle because love always delights in imitation, doesn't it? We become like the one we love, and oftentimes we see this in our day-to-day lives. We mimic both the tone and the word choice, the behavior of people we love and respect and cherish, and Peter is doing just that. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus. Keep near to Christ and you will be Christ-like. It is impossible to trust Christ, to obey Christ, to fellowship with Christ, to draw near to Christ without becoming like Christ. And there is no greater thing that anybody could say about any of our lives than that, is there? That we are like Jesus. This is to be the commitment of every believer. That we are to be growing in the likeness of our Savior. But it doesn't happen easily, does it? In fact, maybe some of you are in here going like, man, I don't, look a lot like, I don't look a lot like Jesus at all. 
And I've been a Christian for some time, and wow, my life is just, I struggle with these sins, and wow, I don't have this growing commitment to the church, and I don't have this growing likeness of Jesus, and I just struggle in so many different ways, and I just want to maybe encourage you and breathe some hope into your heart this morning. Do you remember who Peter was not long ago? I mean, do you remember the kind of man he was? Do you remember the kind of failure he was? Peter, for all intents and purposes, seemed utterly hopeless, I mean, this is the guy, remember, with the foot-shaped mouth. He couldn't get it right. He was exasperating. He was this rough, burly fisherman. He was self-sufficient. He was self-confident. And he was so so often so self-deceived. This is the same guy, remember, that told Jesus that even though everybody would fall away, I never will, Lord. This is the guy who took Jesus aside and rebuked. You just have to like, think, think how crazy this is. He rebuked Jesus. Jesus, before his disciples said, guys, I need to tell you something. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, you're wrong, you're crazy. Let me tell you what the real plan should be. And you remember Jesus had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. This is, this is the man who had denied Jesus three times when he promised he wouldn't. Does it sound like you at all this morning? He's the guy who looked across the courtyard when Jesus had been beaten and flogged, humiliated, and he connected eyes with Jesus as he stood after denying him, and their eyes met across the courtyard in the moment. This is the man, remember, who felt the shame and guilt of his sin, and he also experienced in that moment the loving, forgiving gaze of his Savior. This is the man who went and wept bitterly over his sin, just broken because of what he had done, and the man who was graciously restored by his Savior, Jesus Christ. And this man, this is what's so staggering, this man, over time, would grow up in the grace of God to look and act so much like Jesus. God isn't finished with him yet, by the way. He's still going to make some mistakes. And Paul's going to have to set him straight in a couple ways. And I hope that's an encouragement for you too. God's not finished with you yet either. God loves you. He knows where you're at. And he desires to take you, to mold you, and to shape you. I find it quite amazing that the very last words that Peter wrote in the Bible is this. Just listen but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.